You're listening to the podcast of Antioch East Baptist Church in Magnolia, Arkansas. This is Pastor Ron Owen. We're so glad that you've joined us today. If you have any comments or inquiries, you can send those to us at aebc123 at me.com. We'll be looking in the book of Titus this morning. In the book of Titus, chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. You may be seated. Why should Christians be different? Why should Christians be different? So for some of you, that question may sound a little bit familiar, because this is not the first time I've asked this question to everybody. I believe it was the first Sunday of my internship. I actually gave a brief message in Titus chapter 3, the first seven verses, and I asked that same question, because I believe that passage answers the question of why Christians should be different. But before Paul answers that question in chapter 3, I think he actually answers it in chapter 2 beforehand. So we're going to be looking at that passage this morning. So with that in mind, why should Christians be different? Whenever I say different, I mean why should we be different from the world? Why should we be different from unbelievers? Why should we be different from the culture at large? I believe most Christians understand that whenever they're saved, it's for some purpose, and they should be different in some way, but why is that the case? Whenever we looked at Titus chapter 3 several months ago, I pointed out that it's very often that I have heard people who don't go to church, they say, I don't want to go to church because there's a whole bunch of hypocrites in the church. So that shows that even people outside of the church, even unbelievers, expect a certain type of behavior among Christians. So why should Christians be different? I believe this passage gives us an answer to that. And the answer is, Christians have received the grace of God. Christians have received the grace of God. And if I were to give a title to this message today, it would be the power of grace. Because as we see, as we go throughout this passage, if someone has received the grace of God in their life, it's going to change them. It's going to cause them to stop doing certain things and to start doing other things. It's going to even impact how they view the future, what they look forward to. So as we begin, this this passage, I believe, is broken up into two main sections that we're going to look at. If you're taking notes, feel free to write this down. The first section I'm simply calling, The Grace of God Has Appeared. And by the way, that's straight out of verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. And because God's grace has appeared, it causes certain things to happen in the believer's life. 
We're going to look at those things in verse 11, 12, and 13. And then we're going to conclude in verse 14 with our second section, which I'm calling Christ gave himself. Christ gave himself. And once again, that is straight out of verse 14 right there. So let's begin by looking at verse verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now, we've sung about grace in a couple of the songs that we just did. And I've already titled this sermon, The Power of Grace. Grace keeps coming up. But what is grace? What is the definition of grace? I've heard Brother Ron just here recently define grace as unmerited favor. I believe that's exactly right. Another definition that I've heard that's saying the exact same thing, just in a little simpler language, is Grace is receiving a good thing that you do not deserve. Grace is receiving a good thing that you do not deserve. So whenever we go to verse 11 here with that understanding, when it says the grace of God has appeared, what that's telling us is that God has given us something good that we do not deserve. Whenever it says it has appeared... That's referring to a moment in time, a moment in history, when God gave us a gift of His grace. Paul doesn't clarify what that gift is in this verse. He's about to a few verses later. But whatever this gift of grace from God is, it goes on in verse 11 and it says that it brings salvation to all men. Salvation here is referring to forgiveness of sins being delivered from the consequences of our sin, which is eternal hell, punishment, suffering for our sins. To receive salvation is to be taken out of that. And this verse is telling us that the grace of God has appeared, and that grace brings salvation to all men. Now, if we're sloppy with that verse right there, we could come to some very dangerous conclusions. That verse is not saying... That because God has shown grace, everybody is going to be saved. It's not saying everyone who's ever lived or everyone who ever will live is going to be saved. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying, I would say, is that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you have done. None of those things matter. God's salvation is offered to everybody. No one is excluded from that offer of salvation because of anything they've done or because of who they are. So in that sense, God's grace that He has given to us as a gift, it's offered to all men. It brings salvation to anyone who will repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. Assuming a person has received this gift that God has given through His grace, we see the effects of it in verse 12. It says that this grace instructs us, or it teaches us, some translations say, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. By the way, that word present right there, in other places in the New Testament, it's translated as now. So you could literally say, in the now age, right now, at this very moment... If you have received God's grace, verse 12 should be describing your life. And there's two main things that verse 12 is saying. First, it says that God's grace teaches us to reject and deny ungodliness. 
worldly behavior. Once again, I ask the question, why should Christians be different? Why should Christians be different from the world? Because if they have received God's grace, that grace teaches them to deny worldly desires, to deny unrighteousness. So that's the one thing that God's grace teaches us to do. The other thing is that it also instructs us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So it teaches us to reject ungodliness, if you want to summarize it, and to instead pursue godliness. This is a major theme in the book of Titus. Paul repeatedly talks about how Christians should engage in good deeds, and he's telling us the reason for that here. So God's grace teaches us to do two things, deny ungodliness and pursue righteousness. I don't know what all of the sins any of you struggle with. I know the sins that I struggle with and that God has saved me out of. But just reflecting on your own life, the things that you have committed in ungodliness, whenever that happens, if you take joy in it, or if you don't see any need to repent of that sin, or if you have no remorse whenever you sin, it's likely that you don't have God's grace in your life which would teach you to deny those things. And also, if you don't take joy, in contrast, in righteousness, and going to church, and reading your Bible, and praying, and doing good deeds, if you don't take joy in those things, once again, it's an indication that you don't actually have God's grace in your life. You don't have His salvation, which would teach you to do those things. So I want to ask all of us, including myself here, does verse 12 describe your life? Do you deny ungodliness, and do you instead pursue righteousness? Ask yourself that question, because the answer to those two questions is going to indicate whether or not you have been saved. In verse 13, we see really what I would call the ultimate litmus test for whether or not someone has received God's grace. Notice the, th- the next thing that God's grace causes a person to do. In verse 13, it says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. This is the next thing that God's grace is going to cause in a person's life. It's going to cause them to look for the blessed hope, the return of Jesus Christ. That word to look there, it's, it's really saying eagerly seeking after, anticipating. I keep looking forward to the day when Christ will return. I'm excited for that day. I want it to come. And that's the behavior of someone who has received God's grace. It goes on and it says, looking for the blessed hope. That blessed hope is referring to the return of Christ. I like what another verse in the Bible says. It says, hope that is seen is no hope at all. Hope is something that relates to things that are not here right now. Things that are future. I have hope that Christ will return. I have hope that one day I will be with Him in eternity. But I don't experience those things right now. Christ hasn't returned yet. He's apparently not returning at this very moment. But it's a hope for Christians that one day He will. The reason Christians view this as a hope, as a good thing, is because verse verse 13 goes on to describe Jesus Christ as our God and our Savior. That is what Jesus is for the Christian. He is both our God 
and our Savior. And if you notice in verse 13, it refers to the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a little interesting way to phrase that. I'm just going to say in verse 13 when it says the appearing of the glory of Jesus. Wherever Jesus' glory is, that means He's there as well. So whenever Jesus' glory appears, that means He Himself has appeared. But I want to consider what Paul calls Jesus at the end of verse 13. He calls Him God and Savior. If you're reading the King James or the New King James, it says something along the lines of the appearing of the glory of our great God and our Savior, Christ Jesus. It almost makes it seem as though it's talking about two different people, God the Father and God the Son. But even if you're reading those translations, you need to understand it's referring both to Jesus Christ. Both God and Savior are speaking about Jesus Christ. And this is perhaps a bigger statement that Paul is making here than we would usually think. If you've been with us uh, in the Mark series that we've been doing on Wednesday nights, you'd know that the New Testament does not shy away from calling Jesus Christ God. That's something that is throughout the entire New Testament. However, usually whenever Jesus is called God, He's referred to as the Son of God, or the Son of Man, or even as Yahweh at times. But here in verse 13, we see something that's a little unique. It's not as often for the New Testament to just outright call Jesus God. It certainly does that, but it's not as common as calling Him the Son of God, for instance. But this verse, verse 13, notice what it says. It outright calls Jesus God. He is our God. Just in case you ever run into someone who says the New Testament doesn't even say that Jesus is God. Or Jesus Himself never claimed to be God. Take Him to the book of Mark. Or take them to the book of Titus, because we see both of those books clearly show the opposite. Jesus is God. It goes on and it refers to Him as Savior. I'm going to hold off on talking about that for just a second. I want to ask one more question for us before we move on. And that is, this verse refers to the return of Christ as a blessed hope. And that's true for the Christian. We view it as a blessed hope because we have received God's grace Jesus is our God. He is our Savior. So we want Him to come back so that we can be with Him. But if you are not a Christian, if you are an unbeliever, I find it very difficult to think that you would view Christ's return this way. Matthew 25 talks about, we don't have to turn there, but Matthew 25 talks about when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, returns, He's going to gather together all the nations... And he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep are referring to Christians there. The goats are referring to unbelievers. And he says the sheep, the Christians, he's going to usher in into eternal life. But the goats, those who have rejected God, those who have rejected Christ, he's going to usher them into eternal punishment. When Christ returns, judgment is going to come along with him. And if you're an unbeliever because of that, you don't look forward to Christ's return. So I just want to ask this question once more. Is this true in your life? Do you consider the return of Christ a blessed hope? Or are you afraid of it? Because you know when He returns, He's going to punish you for your sins. I want to point out that 
if you are afraid of Christ's return, and you know that you should be punished for your sins, listen, everything we've been talking about up to this point is about God's grace. Did we not just see in verse 11 that God's grace brings salvation to all men? It doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. As I said, God offers His grace to you. Just receive it. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ's work on your behalf. Going on to our second section, Christ gave Himself. We've been talking about, like in verse 11, God's grace has appeared. This gift of grace that God gave was at a moment in time. Well, I believe Paul tells us a little more about that moment in time in verse 14. He says Christ gave Himself. That's also referring to a moment in time, a historical event, when Jesus Christ willingly subjected Himself to the cross. And notice what it says here. It says Christ gave Himself. It doesn't say someone else gave Christ. It doesn't say He was given. It says He gave Himself. Let's, if you would please turn with me to John chapter 10. Very briefly, I think we can read some verses that will help us see this even a little clearer. John chapter 10, and I believe the words may be on the screen. But John chapter 10, looking at verse 17, this is Jesus speaking here. And He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. He goes on in verse 18, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. This verse, these two verses make it very clear. Jesus Christ had the authority to give His life away, and if He had the authority to give it away, He had the authority to take it right back up. And that's exactly what he did. Now, why am I pointing that out? I'm pointing it out. I don't want to get too much into this, but sometimes you may hear an illustration or an example to try to help people understand the cross a little bit better or God's love for us. There's one illustration I heard one time as a young kid in church about how there's this man who works at a train station and his son goes to work with him one day. Has anyone heard that illustration before? Well, I don't want to get too much into it, but it's basically this thing where this man, he has this little kid, and he ends up having to sacrifice his son so that he'll save this train load of people who are coming through. Well, that's not what the Bible portrays. Jesus is not this unwilling child who had no control over what was happening at his death. No, he was in complete control. That's why I emphasize here in verse 14, he gave himself. This wasn't a mistake. He knew what He was doing. And we see the reason Christ gave Himself in the rest of verse 14. It says He gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. To redeem there during Paul's day whenever he wrote this letter, that word was actually used at times to refer to a person purchasing a slave, buying another person. The Bible is by no ways condoning or saying that slavery is okay by using that word. But I think it gives a very vivid picture of what Christ accomplished on the cross. 
He purchased us. He bought people with His life and with His blood. And as such, since He has purchased us, just as if I go to the store and I buy something, I'm going to use that thing for the purpose that I bought it for. I'm not just going to leave it at the store to just keep doing whatever it wants to do on its own. Whenever Jesus purchased us, whenever He redeemed us, He did so for a purpose. And we see it goes on. It says He redeemed us out of every lawless deed. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody? Remember in verse 12, it says that God's grace instructs us or it teaches us to deny ungodliness. And here in verse 14, we're seeing that Christ redeemed us to take us out of ungodliness. So you see that verse 14 is saying something very similar. And it goes on. It says the second reason Christ died on the cross is to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Once again, looking at verse 12, what does it say? God's grace teaches us to live righteously and godly. Well, what did Christ accomplish on the cross? He purified us from all of our ungodliness so that we would be His own possession. This is what the cross of Christ accomplished for us. It redeemed us out of our sin and causes us to be purified. We just sang the song, Grace Greater Than Our Sins. The refrain or the chorus of that song says, Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. That's what this verse says in verse 14. It pardons us. Christ pardons or redeems us out of our sin so that He could cleanse us and purify us to be a people for His own possession. And we see the reason why Christ did all this at the end of verse 14. He did this so we will be a people for His own possession. He bought us. We are His. And He wants us to be zealous for good deeds. Why should Christians be different? Because that's the purpose for which Christ died for us. We see here that Christ didn't die for us so that we could just go do whatever we want with our life. Live lives away from Him or anything like that. He bought us with His blood, so we are His and we do what He wants us to do, which is to be zealous for good deeds. What are some examples of good deeds? Well, I'd say three very simple ones that we may not think are very special but are very important. First of all, go to church. All of us are succeeding in that this morning, but go to church. Be active in church. If God has saved us, and if He is our God, Jesus Christ is our God, then why would we not want to gather together with other believers and worship Him for what He has done for us? Another good deed we can do is we can read our Bible. Once again, something we could very easily think is not as important, but it's vitally important because it's in reading the Bible where we learn more about this God who has saved us. And on a personal level, we can come to know Him better. A third thing is we can pray. We can pray to this God who has saved us. We can commune with Him. Other things that we can do that would be a good work is we can share the gospel with other people. We have received God's grace. Jesus has redeemed us from our sins so we can share that message with others so they can be saved as well. We can serve other people. 
We can give to the needy. All of these things are acts of worship, and all of these things are what we should do as good deeds in thanks to everything that Christ has done in our lives. So as we conclude, I want to ask a couple of more questions for us to reflect on as we finish up. First is, for anyone in here who has not received God's grace, who has not been redeemed from his or her sins, who has not been saved by God, don't you see in this passage that God offers salvation to you? That He instructs us to live a certain way and one day He will return? And if we refuse to receive His grace, if we refuse to accept Him as God and as Savior, well, we may find that it's too late whenever He returns to submit to Him, to become His disciple. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you are an unbeliever and these things are not true in your life, I've been asking you to ask yourself the question, is this true in my life? If you were answering no to those questions, then even right now we're about to have a song of response. You don't even have to wait till then. Right now you can repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. For those of us who are believers, are we faithfully living according to what this passage says? Do we deny ungodliness? Or do we dabble in it a little bit every now and then? Go back to the old man, as Paul might would say. Go back to our old life. Or do we reject that? And whenever we do fall, and whenever we do sin, we run back to Jesus, we run back to the cross, and we ask Him to forgive us of that sin, and to renew us and give us strength to pursue Him even more. What is our response? And if you are faithfully living the Christian life, then worship God for what He has done for us. Worship God for His grace.